How do you solve a terrifying attack? But not one that's just happened. One from a quarter of a century ago. She was completely traumatised. Is every woman's worst nightmare, every girl's worst nightmare, but also every parent, every husband, father, for their loved one. You're a cold case detective, but apart from a DNA sample, you have virtually nothing. We didn't have hardly any paperwork for the rape at all. Nothing. Um, I think it was just one piece of paper, which was a forensic submission form. We're with investigators as they put the case back together, piece by piece. It's all in black and white, and you start to bring to life the scene and what had happened at the time. You have a chance to achieve justice, but it's a race against time before exhibits disappear. When we went in there, the box for January 1986 is there, and they were going that week to take those away. We're like, no, 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 we need that, we need that. And when the case starts to come together, you realise what this means to everyone, not just the victim. He said, I know exactly why you're here. He said, this is that rape, isn't it, from 1986. He said, I'll never forget that, and it's haunted me forever. Hard work and ingenuity bring a showdown. So it's knock-knock. It's butterflies in your stomach thinking, here we go. I'm about to arrest somebody for rape from 26 years ago. First cold case arrest. And surely the criminal justice lawyers will be on your side, you would think. So I thought it would just be a 20-minute friendly chat with CPS and an agreement to charge. It was absolutely ludicrous. And they weren't going to budge on it. She wasn't going to charge. My name's Roberts Murphy. This is Behind the Crimes. Behind the Crimes is the podcast that tells you about the biggest or most interesting cases from the people who were involved. Victims, detectives, experts, and sometimes even the criminals themselves. For more than 20 years, I've covered some of Britain's highest profile crime stories for television news. In this series, I'm making a deep dive into each case to see how crimes were solved or how criminals managed to evade justice. If you want to see evidence from each case, watch video clips, read more, or get in touch, just subscribe at robertsmurphy.substack.com and please do rate and review our podcast. Now, a word of warning, this is a crime podcast and this episode talks about sexual assault. Now, while there are no intimate descriptions, there may be language and imagery you might find affecting, so listener discretion is advised. This episode is called Cold Case, Solved from a single sheet of paper. The year is 2010, and we're at Avon and Somerset Police's headquarters in Portishead in the southwest of England. In the warren of beige corridors is a room, and inside this room is the last chance for cases to be solved. My name's Julie Mackay, and in 2010, I was a detective sergeant working on the major crime review team in Avon and Somerset Police, um, better known to many as the cold case team. Now, while some of the inquiries the review team look at are new and live, important cases which need an urgent second set of eyes, others are old, really old. 
There are a couple of dozen unsolved murders, the oldest being a shooting in a cinema from way back in 1946. But most of the cases, over a thousand of them, are sex crimes where the offender's never been caught. And Julie Mackay, who's the unit's new sergeant, has become fascinated with unsolved cases and achieving justice. Just the whole aspect of being able to review not just cold cases, but current ones, a fresh pair of eyes, looking for opportunities to get convictions where they may not have existed before or perhaps where people have missed things, not because they were particularly inept, but just sometimes things get lost, don't they? So I was really just fascinated by the whole reviewing process and how it can create great opportunities. Julie comes across the file of a woman called Samantha. I was going through all the files and looking at where we were with our undetected rapes, where there was DNA. And as a result of that, I'd given the files out to different people in the office. They had a small team. There's just half a dozen of us in there. And it was just reviewing to see, was the file up together? What paperwork we had? uh, Were there any other opportunities? And have we missed something? And so there were two cases um, that we'd reviewed at that time. And one was this rape. It was a stranger rape. Nasty attack girl walking home on her own in Bristol and there was another one that was a sexual assault in a different part of Bristol uh, where a lady was pulled into a garden and seriously sexually assaulted. Julie hands the case to one of her civilian investigators. My name is Gary Mason. Gary had actually set up the cold case unit seven years earlier. He then retired and returned as an investigator. Now Samantha had been attacked nearly a quarter of a century earlier. The problem was that by now, 2010, nearly all of the papers were missing. Julie and Gary are about to tell you what happened to Samantha, but when they started looking at the case, they didn't know the details you are about to hear. 30th of January 1986, she was she spent the evening with friends um, in and around the St Paul's area of Bristol and decided it was time to walk home. She was walking home alone um, in Bristol late at night and as she was walking home she was effectively by befriended by a guy who was just walking alongside her chatting to her. He didn't really seem to pose any threat to her at that time. He was trying to chat her up really. He was um, trying to get to know her name. He wanted to know whether she fancied going out with him, this type of conversation. And she just decided the best way to deal with it was to chat to him, be polite, but carry on walking to get to where she wanted to go. He was described as a blackmail. He was a bit older than her, but not, you know, not particularly old. He was aged around 30-ish, fairly stocky build, fairly tall, um, and just casually dressed. She turned into Philip Street, telling him that um, my boyfriend's going to be expecting me. No, I don't want to go out. You know, please, can you let me carry on? My boyfriend's expecting me, and... Suddenly, he changed his whole sort of friendly being that had happened up until then, um, changed to being a little bit aggressive. He grabbed hold of her. Suddenly, he dragged her into a side street and took her into the doorway of a church and pulled down her clothes and raped her. This was a life-changing attack. 
Samantha managed to free herself. She ran from the church and found help at the nearest place possible. And she had gone from that doorway around the corner to, there was a printing firm that was open all night, because in those days when newspapers were popular, the print work used to operate all night so the early morning papers could get out. So it's about one in the morning, half past one in the morning. I'd gone into the print works, uh, obviously in a very distressed state, and reported to the first person that she came that she'd been attacked, and they called the police. Remember the print works, it's important. The foreman called the police, and the inquiry began. Samantha was seen by a police surgeon, a female police surgeon, and um, her clothing was seized by the, the same policewoman. And then various samples were taken, um, swabs, sexual offence swabs, to try and recover any potential semen that could go off to the lab and hopefully would be blood grouped to help identify an offender. And you got that, didn't you? The lab managed to get a, um, a sample of semen um, which they managed to get a blood group from. It was not the most common blood group, so it was 3% of the population. So it was going to be quite good if we got suspects, we should be able to eliminate them. A couple of suspects were arrested back in January 1986, but their blood was different from the attacker's unusual type, so they were eliminated. And the investigation fizzled out. When all, as we say, all reasonable lines of inquiry had been exhausted, it was filed as a cold case. Samantha was left distraught, violated, without justice, with little idea who had done this to her. She was completely traumatised, as anybody would be. You don't expect to be walking home at one in the morning and to be raped by somebody you don't know. So stranger rapes are rare. And this is a typical stranger assault that everybody fears and that people assume when rape is talked about, this is what rape is, and is every woman's worst nightmare, every girl's worst nightmare, but also every parent, every husband, father for their loved one. It's something that you'd never, ever want to happen to anybody you knew or to yourself. And um, so she was really, really traumatised when she went into the print works so now we need to fast forward 24 years from 1986 and we're back in that cold case inquiry room. The story, the one you've just heard, well, at that time, Gary and Julie don't know it. All they have is a log saying that this is a case with a DNA sample. And since the attack, DNA science has evolved and scientists have recently been testing their best exhibits to see if they can do anything with them. One day, totally out of the blue, we get notification from the Forensic Science Service that they had carried out additional work on the swabs from Samantha. They had got a DNA profile and they loaded it on the DNA database. That's all I needed now was for them to say, and we know who it is. But instead of saying that, they said, we haven't identified who it is, but that same person is on the DNA database, but only is responsible for burglary. So we've got what we call a scene-to-scene -scene match. So the person responsible for this burglary, blood found at the burglary, has the same DNA as the person responsible for your rape. So they didn't know who the offender actually was. His identity wasn't on the National DNA database. But scientists said the same offender, Samantha's attacker, had left DNA at a burglary in Bristol. 
Could this second crime give Gary and Julie a clue? They needed to tread carefully. It's a bit of a nightmare because you don't know what happened. What you don't want to do. I didn't want to go and see Samantha straight away because I go and see Samantha and I say to her, we've now got a DNA profile for the person who attacked you, but we still don't know who it is. That's breaking it all up potentially for nothing because we might never find out who it is. So what I wanted to do was to build the case first, see if I could identify an offender and then contact um, the victim so that I would get enough of an account from her to be able to question the, um, the suspect. The problem was that by now Samantha's case was so cold, all the files had been lost. Originally, they would have been written up by the officer in the case, the detective constable or DC. We didn't have hardly any paperwork for the rape at all. Nothing. Um, I think it was just one piece of paper, which was a forensic submission form, which quite bizarrely Gary Mason had signed off on (laughs) as the submissions authorising officer to send it to the lab all those years earlier. And the first thing I noticed was my handwriting all over it. I still couldn't remember the offence. And I could see what had happened. I had helped the DC decide what should be submitted. And I'd written on the form the various items to be submitted, who had seized them, etc. What we wanted done. And then it went off the DC would have sent the samples off with that form to the lab. And so what started the investigation off was because we had nothing for the rape and we didn't know who'd done that, um, we thought we'd go to the burglaries. Burglary offence happened in St Paul's. It happened in 2003. And a lady and her partner were living in the house in St Paul's and it was night time and she heard, when she was in her bedroom, she heard a noise she felt was coming from the house. Went into the bathroom where she thought the sound came from and she saw her bathroom window was open. She thought she'd locked it. So she looked out the window and she saw what she described as two or three black males running across the gardens out the back. She looked around in the bathroom and she could see what looked like a trickle of blood on the bath panel. Looked around the rest of the house, couldn't see that anything had been touched, but decided to phone the police to report the burglary. Someone had been in her house leaving blood behind. Scenes of crime attended at that scene and swabbed the blood. And that was submitted in the usual way to the lab in a hope of getting DNA, because by 2003, DNA was common practice. And that DNA was loaded onto the National DNA Database with no hit. So I managed to dig the crime report out about the burglary, which was one sheet, two-sided, one sheet of A4. But on that sheet, it made it clear that the woman from the house, she was adamant that the blood on the bath hadn't been there before. She'd not seen it before. She lived with her partner. Um, As far as he was concerned, he'd not left blood on the bath. 
So um, it had to have been the offenders, they felt. It just sat there. It sat there as a crime scene stain for a burglary where nothing was stolen in St Paul's. I said, I would like to phone the victim of the burglary up, see if she's got any idea who might have committed the burglary, any better description of the people running over the garden, any more detail of who she was living with, just in case it might come up with a lead that would help us on a rape as well. This is methodical policing. More than half a decade had passed since the burglary, but they would never identify the men who were running away across the gardens seven years after it had happened. The homeowner only caught a glance, a glimpse of them. So Julie and Gary tried another tack. Why should they assume it even had been a burglary? The homeowner's DNA had been taken at the time, not a match to the rape, of course, but what about her partner? His hadn't been taken, and they needed to eliminate him. She answered the phone, and I explained to her that we're still looking at the burglary that happened, the DNA on the National DNA database for it, but we don't want it on there if it's not an offender's DNA. Is there, and I know you said at the time, because I've read it, it wasn't anyone from the house, but is there anyone from the house that it could remotely possibly have belonged to? And she said, well, I don't think so. The only person I lived with, and she said, was Valentine Barnett. So I said, well, is Valentine about? And she said, yeah. So she passed me to Valentine and I explained to him what it was all about. And I, I said, could it possibly be your blood? I mean, you've obviously used the bathroom. And he said, well, I don't remember ever cutting myself. I suppose it could be. So I said, well, the best thing I can think we can do is if we can have a voluntary swab from you and test it and test it only against that blood swab on the bath. If the blood on the side of the bath could be his mm -hmm. and if it was his, then we don't particularly want his DNA on the National DNA database as blood of potential offenders on a burglary. When it's not, it's innocent blood on the side of the bath. This raised a moral issue. Detectives knew that if somebody were to give their DNA and that matched the blood in the bath, well, they're investigating that, but they're actually really more interested in finding Samantha's attacker. Now, there's a bit of police procedure about to happen here. In a case like this, police take what's known as an intelligence swab. It can't be used in evidence, but it is enough to tell them if their suspect is a match or not. An evidential swab comes later. We know it's linked to a rape, but uh, it's also linked to the burglary investigation at that house. And fundamentally, we didn't think that he was a suspect in the rape. So we went to take the sample and told him we were taking it quite simply because we needed to be sure that um, we'd eliminated him as being the person that left the blood there for the burglary. Um, we were still investigating the burglary. The issue, so if you went there and said, oh, and by the way, this is linked to a rape, you know, if it if it is him, then he might cut and run because it is only an intelligence swab, isn't it? You'd have to go back and get another one. If it isn't him and you're there saying, oh, and by the way, we also think you might be responsible for a rape. You think that's a real, real serious thing to say to somebody when you've got no grounds to do that? The partner of the burglary victim, Valentine Barnett, was a black man. 
Details were sketchy because he had no official paperwork, no records, including criminal records. Remember at the beginning of this episode, we heard how Julie had ordered reviews into two cases. This, Samantha's attack, was the first, and it looked flaky. Burglars running away, a partner who was a calm, law-abiding citizen. The other was an unrelated assault of a woman pulled into a garden and attacked. They had a suspect in that case, and he was banged to rights, they were sure. They just needed the DNA match. Julie sent out one of her investigators, Alan, to do the swaps. So on that day, we did, we did two swabs. Um, as I said, we had two offences that we were investigating. So we've got our man at the burglary scene, who is just a calm, quiet, unassuming gentleman, uh, living a quiet life um, with his partner. So, yeah, fine, no issues, gave the swab, not a problem. The other guy who we were looking at for the other serious sexual assault was somebody who had a history of being around prostitutes. He'd been stopped curb crawling a lot. Um, there was a bit of domestic abuse, violence history within the household. He was what we would describe as a bit of a sexual predator and a seedy man. And out of the two, if you were looking at somebody who was a sex offender, the second one was definitely the one that we were likely to get a hit on. And I think good old Alan said, well, if it's not him, I should be eating my shorts. You know, I'm definitely convinced it's not going to be the burglary man. He's not going to come back as a match, but the other guy will. I sent off our swabs, wait your usual three, six weeks for it to come back. And bizarrely, the sexual deviant man, as I describe him, was eliminated. So it's not him. There goes all our prejudices out the window and good old policing intuition. And, um, and we got a match on the blood in the burglary, which of course then means a match for the rape, the stranger rape, uh, with the occupant of the house, which was just unbelievable. Yeah. And what did you think? Just talk us through that moment where you have the hit, that here is the first cold case that, you, you know, you've got this far along the track. Oh, it's incredible because it was 25 years earlier and it's like, wow, I've actually detected a rape from 25 years ago just through reviewing and that was everything that when I went to work in that team and to do things that I'd hoped to do and hoped to achieve. But of course, the brilliance of that and the elation of that moment is then always offset by now what? Now what do we do? Because you've also opened a huge can of worms and there's some difficult decisions to be made around that. So you know who the burglar is because there's not a burglar, but you know who the rapist is, but you can't use that rape sample Yet I can't, I can't use the sample, the voluntary swab I took from him, anything whatsoever to do with the rape. Yeah. I've now found out that there wasn't a burglary. I also realised at the back of my mind that had he said at the time when the burglary was reported, that might be my blood, they would have taken a sample from him there and then, eliminated it as being his blood, and no DNA profile would ever have gone on to the scene database. And I'd never have ever had a match. You'd never had a match and you'd never had a chance of finding the rapist. Not unless Valentine Barnett committed a crime and had his DNA taken for something. So this man, the homeowner's partner, Valentine Barnett, was a bit of a mystery. 
So he'd never been in trouble with the police. There was no intelligence records on him, no tax records for him, no claiming benefit for him, no passports, no nothing, nothing whatsoever. He was not known, effectively. Now the work began, because a DNA hit would never be enough. There was still so much they didn't know about this case. Where exactly it happened? What happened? What about the survivor? They couldn't prosecute this case if she didn't play ball. What had happened to her? The risk assessments around him we did quite quickly. And then there's our victim and trying to identify where she is now, what her life is like. Um, Are we going to approach her? How do we approach her? Will she want to talk to us? So it's not unusual for women who have been victims of rape to not tell anybody subsequently in life, even if they've reported to the police at the time. So quite often they might have a whole new family and a whole new life. And if you go knocking on the front door saying, oh, we're the police from the cold case team and their family doesn't know about it, that can be really, really difficult for them as well as obviously embarrassing and humiliating. Uh, It can invoke trauma. So rape obviously causes significant trauma. And how do we deal with that? And what do we do to look after them? Uh, Will they talk to us as well um, or not? And of course, that's another difficult decision, isn't it? Because without your victim engaging, you don't have a case. And who's going to do it and how are we going to do it? We found out where she was living and she was a vulnerable person who had quite a lot of support around her. Um, She had some mental health challenges. Um, So... I chose um, Liz to go and see her. So Liz is really, really good at dealing with victims, really caring and compassionate and um, has put a lot of focus and energy into doing the very best she could for them. And we went cold calling, uh, quite literally, knocked on the door, but always ready with a bit of a story that if somebody else answered the door, if it wasn't appropriate, then um, we'd have a letter that we could give them to open up privately um, to contact us. So as it transpired, um, she lived on her own, but she was a very vulnerable lady, which we subsequently learnt was all as a result of the attack that had taken place. And uh, she, in essence, said that she never thought that he would be caught and... um, She wasn't sure if she wanted to talk to us about it initially. And it took several visits um, just to build up a bit of a rapport, uh, trust and confidence, and give her the time to process what we were effectively telling her in that we'd found her attacker and there was an opportunity to bring him to justice. It's like um, when when you knock on the door and say, we are from the cold case team and we're investigating this rape, it brings it back as though it's just in that moment. And she said that during the course of her interviews. And she talked to us about the impact it had had on it. So prior to being raped, she was a strong, outgoing woman. She had a good job. Uh, She was carefree. She wasn't frightened of anything. And she was living her best life. And after the attack, she became withdrawn. She suffered mental health issues. She became drug dependent. I think she became a heroin addict. Um, she subsequently then had a whole host of uh, physical health issues as well. She was never able to form a relationship. She never had any children. And effectively, it completely and utterly destroyed her life. And us going there again, probably just 
compacted that trauma a bit more. Um, but on the balance of that, the fact that it had never been forgotten and the opportunity to now take it to the court was something that she thought carefully about and we thought carefully about given her vulnerabilities. Um, and it was a process that she wanted to go through. And when you're talking about her amongst us as a team and how we're going to support her and the right things to do and whatever she wanted to do, we'd have gone with it. Admiring her bravery and courage, it was just incredible. And as soon as we knew that we had her on board, then we started with the other processes that we needed to do as well. She wanted this man prosecuted. It had affected her life terribly. And she explained some of the way it had affected her life. She could remember it as though it was only yesterday. Quarter of a century on. Yeah. Quarter of a century on. She could remember it in lots of details and to such an extent that for the very, very first time, right at the end of the interview, she was asked a straightforward, open question. Is there anything else that you think might be of use? Remember, the victim had given an account before years earlier, but what she was about to say would make everything fall into place. Now, I was expecting, you know, she might say just something like, oh, yes, and he did have a spot on his cheek or something like that. But what she said was, it probably means nothing because... When it happened, as you realise, it was only two weeks away from being Valentine's Day. But he did say to me at one point that his name was Valentine. Now, we hadn't told her that the name of the offender was Valentine either. So I'm thinking... What excellent evidence to corroborate our DNA match. So the survivor was on board and incredibly, she remembered this new detail which officers weren't told in the original inquiry. She recalled what her attacker had called himself. But Julie and Gary still needed to pass the threshold to charge Valentine Barnett. And the Crown Prosecution Service, which makes the charging decision, would always need more. The team needed to completely rebuild the case. And at this point, they had no original documentation apart from the lab submission form. Could the original detectives help? Were they even still around? I had established that who the Knights DC was. And he was still in the job. He went to the scene and he dealt with everything there. So we bring up Bob. Hi, Bob. I've got to talk to you about this job from like 1986. You know, we know it's a few years ago now, like 25. And um, just wondering what you can remember about it. And and he's like, I'll never forget that job. So really? He said, I know we deal with a lot of rapes during our policing career. He said, but 
that one has always stayed with me. She was so traumatised. It was such a horrific attack. And I can remember turning up at the scene and seeing her broken bracelet in the church doorway and going round to the print shop and talking to the guys there. And he said, actually, I've still got my books with all the notes in. He said, I've never got rid of them all. You know, I'll be able to dig it out for you. So I, oh, that's really, really good. So we need to do that. So we had his original notes that he made at the night and we could get a statement from him giving a, a picture really of what the scene was like that night when he'd gone there and he was the first responding officer and he obviously got the initial count from her which is really really important. And he was able to tell me the exact location where the offence happened and he said and one thing I can tell you the victim when she was attacked her bracelet broke because I've still got pictures in my mind he says of all the pieces of the bracelet on the step of the chapel where it happened. But pictures in the original DC's mind were no good to Julie and Gary. They needed the actual pictures taken by the scenes of crime officers in 1986. They would be held in storage if they hadn't been thrown out through one of the force's regular weeding procedures, which it did once in a while to try to stay on top of its mountain of paperwork. And they were in the process of weeding everything. And the photographs in those days were all um, taken on reels of film. And they were literally like um, slides that you could hold up and look at in the light. And you could just see the pictures going along, the negatives of them. And there were boxes and boxes of these, the good old shoe boxes of these with all the slides in. And they were weeding them in date order. And they were had got to December 1985. So they weeded up to December 1985. And when we went in there, the box for January 1986 is there. And they were going that week to take those away. We're like, no, 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 we need that, we need that. Gary had to go through three boxes to see if any of the images after the attack were there, lying around loose with all the force's other CSI photos from January 1986. And I was about a third of the way through crate number three, and if you could imagine, each of these negatives, I would take out one at a time, hold up to the light to see what the image is. Sometimes it was people with horrendous injuries that had been photographed. Sometimes it was houses. And I, I held up this one image, and the first one I held, it was an archway. And I thought, oh, could be a chapel doorway. You never know. The next one that was with it, I held up. And when you looked closely, you could see a bracelet in pieces on the step of this doorway. Which was really important because when she's recounting in her, uh, her interview about what happened on that night, she talks about her bracelet being broken and being lost and the evidence that goes with it. So that was our first bit of luck, if you like and so we take those back so now we've got those we get those developed and it's all in black and white and you start to bring to life the scene and what had happened at the time they had the photos they had the original detective's recollection but still this wasn't enough for the cps to charge valentine bonnet with samantha's rape who else could help what about the doctor who examined her she who was just retiring from practicing and she'd been a police surgeon so the police surgeons were generally doctors doing their day job and then they would do an on-call rotor um, 
for us in those days and they would come to the rape centre, um, examine rape victims, take all the swabs, give it to policewomen like me who certainly at the beginning didn't know what on earth was going on. Nobody ever trained you or explained to you how to receive all these swabs and what to do. It was carnage really, but uh, we always managed to get through it. So she would take all the swabs, hand them to a police officer who then put them in storage and she would usually produce a statement or a report about what she'd taken, detailing any injuries and any opinions she had she said I was clearing out my attic just two weeks ago and I was going through all my books and all my notes from all the cases I dealt with with the police and I read this one and she said and I just remember it really really clearly and she said yeah I was putting all the books I was going to take them to the tip or put them in a skip and we're like and have you where are they now and you're always on the edge of your seat with bated breath saying please don't let her put that book in the skip because if she has we've lost it uh, but if she's got it, you know, it's amazing. Oh, no, she said, um, unfortunately, I didn't manage to do it that day because something else came up. So, yeah, I've got it here on the side. It's like, great. Will you give us a statement? She's like, of course I will. So off we went out there, original notes as well, and, and got her statement. I went round her address and I seized the book. But she was had been such a meticulous person. One of the first things she did when she examined patients, victims was ask them what happened. Mm. And we had the full victim's account there in writing in the doctor's notes. In the doctor's notes. So yeah. not in any police files because they're not around. But not the in any police files. Notes, no. It's there. Yeah, not in a statement from the victim, but there, that's the victim's account. So we knew what the victim had mm. said had happened. And what about other witnesses? Remember the printers where Samantha had fled to after her attack? Was the foreman who saw her still around? And then the next person that we saw that was really key from the night was um, the guy at the print shop. So effectively, the first person that she, the victim, had seen um, when she'd been attacked, after she'd been attacked... And the print shop obviously closed down, long closed down by now. But as we all know, Gary is brilliant at finding everybody and anybody. The printing company had gone bust and no longer existed in Phillips Street. They were bought out by another printing company who had been bought out by a third printing company who were now based in Portbury. And when I went there, fortunately, I was introduced to a gentleman who said, oh, I work for the original um, company in Bedminster and... He confirmed the foreman's name, but he said, I know where he lives. And he told me the part of um, the countryside, Chu Magna Way, where he lived. And my research then identified someone of that name in Chu Magna. And Gary and I went out to see him. And again, just cold calling on the door and went up to his house. Nice detached house. Dogs all very busy. And when we knocked on the door and just said, oh, hi there, my name is Judy Mackay, I'm DS, and this is Gary Mason, a colleague, and we're on the cold case team for Avon Somerset. And we thought you might be able to help us with something. And as soon as we said that, he said, I know exactly why you're here. He said, this is that rape, isn't it, from 1986. He said, I'll never forget that. I'll never forget that day. I'll never forget that poor girl and the state she was in. And it's haunted me forever. Yeah, please come in. So in we went, um, sat down there at his dining room table. We spent ages with him. And he just told us exactly what had happened, you know, how this girl had come in, uh, you know, in a completely disheveled state. Um, she was 
obviously really, really upset. Um, she was explaining that she'd been attacked and he'd called the police. And he said, you might hear about these things, but to see it, it will never, ever leave you, the impact of her and what had happened to her. And he said, I've often thought about it over the last 25, 26 years and wondered whatever happened to her and whether the offender was ever caught. And so he gave us a statement and it was as though it was still the night that it had happened. It was so vivid in his memory. So it just goes to show how far reaching these attacks are, doesn't it? So this is an important statement because with victims of attacks like this, you want a statement to show how they were immediately afterwards. Because if anyone's going to suggest a consensual act took place, she wouldn't have been in that state. So it was important. From nothing, Julie and Gary suddenly had what looked like a complete case. They had spoken with the survivor, the original detective, the doctor and the key witness. Now it was time to speak with their suspect. Off we went to go and arrest him for a rape from 26 years earlier. So I went with Gary and the house is just a small terraced house in St Paul's on one of those side streets, little two bedroom one. And when we knocked on the door, uh, his partner opens the door first of all. So it said to her that we have run the police and that we needed to speak to Valentine. Um, about something and went him. What's going through your mind at this moment? Because you know what you're about to do is about to change at least two people's lives here. What sort of what, what thoughts do you have in your mind ahead of this moment? Whenever you go and arrest somebody for something like this, there's a whole mixture of things. There's a bit of apprehension. So, uh, and the apprehension is how they're going to behave. So, are they going to be compliant and come quietly? Um, are they going to suddenly be very violent towards you and um, attack you? Are they going to try and do a runner because they don't want to get caught? And the fact that you're dealing with somebody, um, you know, who's slightly older doesn't mean that they're not going to do one, any one of those things. I've had all of those things from people of all ages, sizes, sexes. The second thing is, is that the other, who else is going to be in the house? Because whatever you say or do, you're going to change the life of that other person that lives with them or is a part of their life. And whether they subsequently are found guilty or acquitted, um, whether they are even the right person or not, because don't get me wrong, DNA is pretty compelling, isn't it? But, you know, sometimes there could be some sort of logical explanation or something else that we hadn't even considered. So it's not knock. Honestly, it's butterflies in your stomach thinking, here we go. And couple that with, I'm about to arrest somebody for rape from 26 years ago. First cold case arrest. That's quite uh, exciting as well, isn't it? Well, it's exciting for me. Um, so, yeah. And she opens the door, invites in, and he's, uh, so we go in and it's, um, so it's a small narrow hallway and into the sitting room on the left. And he's there. Uh, and he is just a real mild-mannered man. And of course, she wants to stay in the room, and um, and that's difficult as well, isn't it? Because you don't you don't want them there to hear you saying those words, because uh, yeah, you can talk about human rights, respect, and privacy, but 
it's for him to tell her what he's arrested for. It's not for us to tell her. So asking her if we can just have a moment alone. How did he come across when you uh, read him his rights? Someone who's under arrest for a rape in 1986 and the victim's name and where it took place and basically told him, you know, the caution, you don't have to say anything unless you wish to do so. Anything you do say may be given in evidence. And he's just, he didn't say anything. He didn't say a word. He said nothing. Later, in interview, Valentine Barnett was a bit more forthcoming, but only a bit. He said he couldn't remember. He said he was just really, he was really a real mild-mannered man. He was, if you were to line up 10 people and say, pick out the guy who did a stranger rape 26 years ago, um, you wouldn't pick him. He was just, he was pleasant is not the right word but he was certainly very polite um and just quiet placid man and he effectively just said he can't remember he smoked a lot of weed he might have done some drugs and whatever reason that he can't remember he can't remember importantly valentine barnett didn't say he did it it would be up to the police and the crown prosecution service to prove the case in a court of law but Julie and Gary had a big hurdle to get over, the CPS. Charging decisions are made by the Crown Prosecution Service. We presented the case to them and they had an opportunity to read it and go through it all and review it. So I thought it would just be a 20-minute friendly chat with CPS and an agreement to charge. And they came back and they said, I'm not happy to charge. And we're like, why not? And they said, well, uh, the actual scene mark, so the, the DNA that's taken from the swab, the semen, they're saying, well, it could have been contaminated. And we're like, well, no, it couldn't. Well, yes, it could. And they had no basis to say in this. There might have been a case somewhere else in the country where there'd been a cross-contamination issue, but we were tight on our evidence. And um, so she was basically implying that his semen had somehow got onto this swab that they were examining in the lab and it wasn't the semen from the scene. <laughs> and I was like, what are you talking about? How on earth is his semen going to get on a swab in a lab when he's never been to the lab? He doesn't work in the lab. He doesn't know the victim. He says he can't remember being there. When Julie phoned up halfway through, I think she had to probably leave the meeting. She'll be able to tell you. But I can imagine she probably had to get up in pure frustration and come away to speak to me before she went back and in for battle number two. Because at some point she spoke to me on the phone and said, they're talking about they're not sure if there's enough corroboration. It was absolutely ludicrous. And they weren't going to budge on it. <laughs> what she wasn't going to charge i said i'm not having that i want to appeal the decision um well you can't appeal i said of course i can there's a proper due process for appealing i said um, i'd like to accelerate this please and so then um i asked her to she said well um you can't do that yet i've got to write something up and always really 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 slow responding so eventually she wrote this really long report about why she didn't think we should charge 
And so I literally meticulously went through every line of her report saying why it was wrong, how her judgment was wrong, why we should charge, why of course it's in the public interest uh, and why it's so important to the victim as well as the communities of Bristol and um, took it back and went to a higher lawyer. And it, it honestly, it took me weeks and many phone calls. <laughs> I was demented. <laughs> and just, just the most infuriating person because you can't have a sensible professional discussion with her. Eventually, Valentine Barnett was charged with Samantha's rape. And there was a cruel coincidence to one of his first hearings at Bristol Crown Court. So yeah, he went to court anyway. And his next court appearance, bizarrely, was on the 14th of February which, of course, is Valentine's Day, which, of course, corresponds with his name, which is why it's stuck in her mind for all those years. At his following hearing, he was asked how he would plead. And, unusually, he made the admission straight away. So, with these cases, they have to go to the Crown Court. And it went to a, uh, it was meant to be having a plea and case management hearing in the Crown Court then at the end of February, um, a couple of weeks later. And he not said anything to anybody ever about this case. And he went straight into court and put in a guilty plea on that first hearing, which was also really unusual. Nobody ever does that. In court that day was Samantha. She had a victim impact statement prepared on the off chance there was a guilty plea. She said, When I was younger, I had dreams and ambitions to do that cliché thing, to marry someone like my dad and go on to have children. I look back now and realise that the rape meant that I was unable to fulfil any of those ambitions and that the rape took me down a path in life that I never wanted to go down. I saw myself as an adult in a strong relationship with a man and having children and I am jealous of those people that have that in their lives. In fact, there are times like Christmas when I feel excluded and lonely. I am so angry and very sad about it. I am not the person that I was and the person that I thought I would be. Until you hear the victim impact statements, the court process is very uh, transactional. So there's processes to go through. Everybody stands up at the right point, the right time. You know, you've got your barristers with their wigs and gowns on. And my client says that, yeah, he's doesn't remember doing this and he's a good person and the prosecuting barrister standing up saying well we're saying he's not a good person this is a, an attack that's had a significant impact on the life of the victim and you can say all those things because they say them every single day and the clerk and the judge will sit there and listen to it but when you hear the actual voice of the victim that's when everybody stops that's when everybody steps out of that transactional time in court and puts themselves almost in the victim's shoes and says, this should never have happened to you and we're just so sorry that your life has been ruined by this man, even though it's, you know, there's nothing that any of us could have done. The only person responsible for it is him. But it does make everybody stop and listen and pause for a moment and reflect on what they're doing and why they're doing it and what the best outcome is. Valentine Barnett was jailed for seven and a half years. A cold case conviction which stemmed from a DNA hit a quarter of a century after his attack. I thought seven years was good because he pleaded guilty at the first opportunity, but I also felt seven years wasn't enough for what he'd done to her. 
um, she was she'd been traumatized again by going through the process um, but equally uh, she was glad that she did it she said it was the right thing to do and talking to her after court you know she she did say that it's been really really difficult doing this and coming here and seeing him and telling you all about it again but actually it was the right thing to do The conviction of Valentine Barnett seemed to energise the cold case team further. It was really important. There was a lot of publicity around it, you know, in the local media, the local press. There was a two-page spread in the Bristol Evening Post. You know, it generated the debate around cold cases and the importance of them. And and I think it just gave Bristol a feeling that the police are there to do the right thing for them and we will look after you forever. We won't stop just because things get hard. There is a massive potential in cold cases. I mean, I am aware of cold cases in the Avon Somerset at the moment with full profiles, the offender not identified. Now, there's familial testing, there's all sorts, potential-wise. There are other cases where they've got partial profiles, but forensic science is developing. Even since I've left, forensic science has come on more and more. So anyone who's committed a crime of this nature, if they've left any DNA behind, that could one day be identified and you could be arrested and taken to court and given quite a hefty sentence. To get somebody 25 years later who was a stranger rapist and get them brought to justice is phenomenal for cold case work and reviewing and just really rubber stamped everything that I believed in about doing reviews and the right thing and how important it is. It was then, it is now and will be in the future. And that's reviewing current cases as well to make sure that we do the very best we can and we learn. And for him, who's left, you know, he's just had this life, hasn't he, of doing what he wanted for 25 years. And I'd like to think it was on his conscience, even though he said he couldn't remember it. I'd like to think it was there. And I think he knows it was there and he was very accepting and was going to go to prison and do his time for it. Uh, And that's right as well, isn't it? You should not be allowed to get away with committing that sort of crime. In this episode, Samantha is a pseudonym to maintain the survivor's true identity. Julie Mackay and Gary Mason would, five years later, solve another cold case, the murder of the 17-year-old schoolgirl Melanie Road from back in 1984. The story of how they did it and the incredible bond formed between Julie and Melanie's mother is the subject of the book she and I have written. It's called Time to Killer. Gary continued working cold cases before they both retired in 2020. He's writing a series of books about his time in the force and they'll be printed later in 2023. If you want to see evidence from this case, watch video clips or learn more, subscribe at robertmurphy.substack.com. Behind the Crimes is written, presented and produced by me, Robert Murphy.